0: Right. Welcome to the local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, August seventh, and if you consider we've done an episode a day since we started, today is episode 100. If you go by the iTunes count, it's episode 101. Welcome to the local 101. Today, back in the day, August seventh, 1959, in the early morning hours, a park truck. Loaded with two tons of dynamite and over four tons of ammonium nitrate Don't carry that stuff in your truck by the way Caught fire outside a supply store in downtown Roseburg The explosion became known as the blast It sent a ball of flame and a mushroom cloud of smoke over 2,000 feet in the air A pilot flying over the vicinity actually thought there had been a Soviet attack One guess: the Umpqua Hotel was hurled through the room's closed door and into the hallway the blast left a crater 20 feet deep, over 50 feet in diameter, leveled eight blocks of Roseburg's Commercial Corps. And today, back in the day, August 7, 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was passed. The resolution authorized the president to do whatever necessary in order to assist, quote, any member or protocol state of the Southeast Asia Collective Defense Treaty. This included involving armed forces. This was the ramp-up to the Vietnam War. It passed without a single dissent in the House of Representatives and only two no votes in the Senate. One of those, Senator Wayne Morse of Oregon. Today we'll start with your Quick 6 News headlines, and we have an interview with local journalist Kate Kay on the upcoming Portland City Council vote on facial recognition. And Alex Zelinsky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, talks to us about the experience of abducted protesters. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. U.S. District Judge Michael Simon has extended a temporary restraining order against federal officers in Portland for another two weeks. The order came from a lawsuit filed by the ACLU urging the judge to stop the federal agent's occupation of Portland. The lawsuit included nearly a dozen statements from journalists, photojournalists, and legal observers who have been injured by federal officers while reporting near the U.S. courthouse last month. The judge initially wanted to modify the order. He wanted to require both journalists and federal law enforcement to wear more identifiable clothing. And he wanted to have the ACLU decide which journalists should be allowed to attend the protests, essentially acting as gatekeepers. Attorney Dwayne Bosworth argued on behalf of news organizations that this would violate the First Amendment. The Portland police are also facing a separate court order, which seeks to limit the use of tear gas and impact munitions. The TRO, the temporary restraining order, will be in effect until 5 p.m. August 20th. Oregon has passed 20,000 COVID-19 cases, 299 new cases on Thursday, 5 new deaths. 25 cases have been reported as originating from a Bible camp near Corbett in Multnomah County. As a follow-up to the recent story, Multnomah County health officials say the outbreak includes 11 campers, 14 staff members, all under the age of 20. Patient zero was identified as one of the staff members who began showing symptoms on July 18th at Trout Creek Bible Camp. And our old friend, the Oregon Employment Department, has said that it has around 1,000 regular unemployment claims left to process, but there are still tens of thousands of the PUA claims. The department announced it had reached its goal of processing 70,000 claims on August 4th, four days ahead of their August 8th stated deadline. And the employment department head said the department has begun to process regular and PUA unemployment claims. But the biggest challenge is determining the right category for tens of thousands of these claims. And that process is very time consuming. The department did announce a benefits-while-you-wait program. It allows claimants to receive benefits while their applications are being processed and reviewed. The department is notifying claimants who are eligible for that program via email or robocall. By the way, those in need of immediate rent or utility assistance, you can contact 211.org. Oregon's cannabis market has been high. It's been rolling up sales and toking up figures. It's been burning up the joint. It's been blazing. Cannabis sales have been defying the otherwise chronic economy. Data collected by the OLCC shows the cannabis market has been riding a big wave this year with marijuana and high demand. The surge of sales began in March as COVID-19 began to take root. Oregon has seen five consecutive months of sales gains, including three months above the $100 million mark. The month of May saw peak user activity with a 60% year-over-year increase. In June, it slowed down a little bit to 50%. And through July, annual sales have totaled $623 million. That's 42% higher than last year. 10% of the total sales came from medical sales. 90%, well, those have come from non-medical sales. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden wrote an open letter to Attorney General Bill Barr and Acting Secretary Homeland Security Chad Wolf asking specifics about the chemical agents used in the Portland protests. In the letter, Wyden points out there may be risks associated with using tear gas during a respiratory pandemic. He alluded to reports of people experiencing changes in menstruation as a result of prolonged exposure. He asked how much research DHS has done to dig into the long-term effects of tear gas, whether or not officers are required to exhaust all other crowd control efforts before releasing tear gas, and if some of the gas canisters released were expired, as some photos of the canisters from press and protesters seem to show. U.S. Representative Earl Blumenauer and Oregon Representative Karen Power have called for an investigation into the environmental effects of tear gas. They sent their letter to the EPA and the Oregon DEQ asking what specific gases were used, if any risk assessment for environmental and human health took place, if any water quality monitoring is taking place, and if any gas canisters released were expired. State Senator Tim Knope announced he's going to draft legislation to extend the cutoff date for mail-in ballots. Currently, ballots have to be received in county elections offices by 8 p.m. on Election Day, which means voters should send in their ballots some number of days before the election. Let's call it Thursday. Senator Knope's proposal requires a postmark for the Saturday before Election Day. The shift to requiring a postmark date rather than an arrival date accounts for any delays in mail services. Many states are anticipating mail-in election this year, and many voters are concerned about delays. Voters might be particularly concerned because the new Postmaster General announced changes to the Postal Service operations that could cause delays, including having mail carriers leave behind mail if they're running late on their routes and cutting overtime. Postal Service workers in Portland have stated that under the current system, voters should mail in ballots by Wednesday before Election Day to make sure their vote is counted. And, well, that day has already passed. And by the way, for people out there with your ballots, drop them off. Some good news. Neuroscientist Avinash Bala from the University of Oregon has found a new way to test hearing in babies from studying owls. Diagnosing hearing loss in babies is difficult because they don't have language to provide response to a sound. Bala says his new test relies on involuntary pupil response, which happens when humans hear a new sound. During a study of the way barn owls process sound, he discovered that any time an unexpected sound occurred, the owl's eyes would brighten. Now Bala is refining the test by focusing on humans' eyes and repeating words like ba and pa and maybe ma or maybe la. I don't know. They might have other sounds also. And the Portland Trail Blazers beat the Denver Nuggets. We blazed the Nugs, bringing them within a half game of that eighth playoff spot. Damian Lillard tied a career high with 11 three-pointers. Gary Trent Jr. had seven three-pointers. Who's Gary Trent Jr.? He's Gary Trent Sr.'s son. That's today's quick six local London
1: X-ray. Alex Zelinsky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, is back to share information about individuals pulled into unmarked vans during local protests recently. The experience, who was responsible, and who were they looking for? Here are Alex and Jefferson Smith.
0: Alex, good morning.
1: Good morning.
0: All right, what do we know now more about people who are snatched and grabbed and put into unmarked vehicles that we didn't know previously?
1: Well, we know more about the experience of the folks who are being grabbed. Of course, we still know very little about kind of the um, the order, the federal decision to do this and kind of what legal... Um, um, tools allow them to do this. Uh, but last week I spoke with one of the, one of the um, you know unknown number of people who have been kind of arbitrarily chased and grabbed by um, camouflaged federal agents on the streets of Portland uh, during or after a protest, but not in the midst of a protest and, and kind of pulled inside of these unmarked, unmarked vans. Um, and eventually detained for a bit but but never really charged with a crime uh, at least in this person's case and the other uh, person that that we know about Mark Pettibone uh, who was reported on it by OPB in, in mid-July uh, neither of these two people um, ever had charges uh, against them they both were released within a few hours but the experience itself was um, you know seemingly very traumatic <laughs> um, and and not a normal uh, you know arrest, not a normal, not what you'd expect, even if you were detained by a federal police. Um, both because of the nature of being grabbed off the street without really being told what's going on, um, not really having an obvious probable cause that has led uh, these people to be to be snatched, and and not really knowing how to follow up afterwards. And so so this person I spoke with, I guess the um, the biggest takeaway, at least that they. Uh, that they shared about their experience that kind of shines some more light on how these um these federal police operate is that it's it's really a mess. It's really unorganized. I mean at least the way that um they were operating a few weeks ago when this person was grabbed off the street, there's not much coordination. It seemed like these officers didn't really know what their orders were, what who they were really what they were really supposed to do with people that they believed were um, you know uh, deemed dangerous and to be detained and, and grabbed off the street this person that I spoke with uh, whose first name is Tetra, he he told me how um, you know he was uh, chased down the street randomly grabbed uh, put in this van you know zip tied light you know kind of laid prostrate in the ground of this van drove around Portland for almost an hour with these <laughs> federal police who were looking for who were first looking for one of their fellow kind of colleagues who they had lost uh, running around and, and they kept they couldn't find where he ended up and then they were looking for where the federal courthouse was um, because all of them were not from portland and were a bit lost they didn't really know exactly where to bring uh, tetra they couldn't find like, the, the, the folks who were giving them orders it wasn't clear there's was a lot of confusion and just a lot of like kind of sloppy mistakes um, just showing at least uh, at least from this person's perspective, like how um, easy it is for these folks to act to, to not really hold themselves responsible and act in impunity, and know that there will not be any consequences for maybe um, mishandling <laughs> um, or or um, or acting unconstitutionally in the way that they're trying to, to detain someone who hasn't been charged of anything. I mean, it seems almost uh, like a dark comedy in some ways. How. Uh, this person explained their experience it was just um, obviously traumatic and scary and they didn't know if they were going to see the light of day after being uh, essentially kidnapped by federal police and driven around for a while Um, but also just really discombobulated.
0: What do we know were the folks you talked to able to Draw any conclusions about the people who snatched them? There have been various rumors about what their official or unofficial capacity was. whether are they were they actual homeland security officers? were they mercenaries? There were lots of different pieces of speculation. Do we learn anything about that, or is that just impossible to find out?
1: Yeah, well, it seemed like at least the folks that picked this guy up tetra they they were with border patrol. They were at least that's what their <laughs> that's what they're, you know, uh, uniforms red. They were with the Department of Homeland Security. It's assumed they were part of Vortex, the, the kind of specialty group of folks um, who, who were trained to kind of be SWAT teams in the border, who were, came to Portland to to act as crowd control um, officers, but really had no training in, in that process, um, that that's who these people were. But of course, none of them gave their names to this um, to this guy, they didn't even ask for his name really until the end kind of flappily um, and yeah, I mean, they haven't um, it's really hard at least from uh, you know, in, in my position to even find out kind of who did what and who's responsible for what reaching out to DHS uh, who's who oversees Border Patrol they, they wouldn't confirm that this detention happened um, but they did speak in a way that, like, clearly knowing that it it was probably someone that worked with them who did this. They just didn't want to share um, any extra details about, you know, the fact that they detained someone possibly uh, without due process, especially since there's multiple lawsuits now that they're facing. But I I think we're at the point where it's pretty clear this is the Department of Homeland Security. These were uh, officers uh, who usually work in the border, who were sent up here, who really didn't know much about, um, handling a, a protest clearly by the way that they were treating.
0: Yeah. Here's a quote.
1: Protesters. Here's yeah. a quote.
0: I was from Tetra. Somebody you spoke mm-hmm. to, I was asking him, who are you? What are my charges? What's happening? He told me he would explain in the van that wasn't reassuring.
1: Right. <laughs> right. I think that's something that we can all relate to. That's a feeling that we would all have. Um, and that's not a normal way. I mean, of course, we are used to police um, not always uh, treating our, our requests with, um, you know, answering us clearly, but like answering that you, you, you talk to someone and you, you give them more information in the van is kind of what an abductor would tell you. This isn't what a member of, of a, you know, government law enforcement agency is expected to. To tell
0: you. I'll tell you in the um, van is not words that anyone wants to hear. Yeah. Well, uh, any, any other piece of the story that you really want to make sure you highlight or maybe what's next in our last 30 seconds, what are remaining questions on your mind?
1: Oh man, there are so many. and I think there are so many that Portland, Portlanders should, should really continue asking the federal government, um, I am so worried and concerned about the people who haven't come forward who haven't spoken about their experiences you know the two people who have are both people who um, both you know white people people who uh, present as male tetra was uh, is a trans man but you know still really uh, traditionally uh, looks like someone who is treated usually pretty well by the federal police I'm really curious if there were people of color if there were people um you know immigrants folks that were picked up who we treated much differently and who's hearing their stories and who are they comfortable talking to um i feel privileged that i'm able to hear at least one of these stories but i know that there's probably more out there that are not being um, heard yet
0: I want to say thank you so much for being with us it is always such a gift
1: <laughs> thanks for having me on X-Ray journalist Kate K joins to share the concerns about facial recognition in Portland you can hear more on Kate's podcast Band and PDX at xraypod.com and major podcast platforms
0: police tactics are under big scrutiny in Portland right now and across the country facial recognition technology is being used more frequently I would say the leading journalist on this topic here in any any of the region is in fact Kate and she's with us right now. Kate, how you doing?
2: That's wow. Hi, Jefferson. How are you? I'm definitely not the leading facial recognition journalist. I don't want to consider myself totally at all. But
0: who's 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 second best? <laughs> who would you say is There's second
2: best? There's a lot best? of bigger names, uh, people who have, said, no. who have who uh, have forums um, that are a little bigger than mine. But just because Kate K
0: is a short name doesn't mean you're not the best one. I think it's you. economical okay. of two syllables.
2: <laughs> it is economical. I like that. Um, yeah. So, so uh, over here at X Ray, um, our, our podcast network, uh, I've been putting together some stories um, tracking Portland's what could be a historic ban on facial recognition, and um, what makes it historic is that it would stop use of private um, u- use of facial recognition in private. Places that have accessibility to the public so think of a store a retail store which actually there's a convenience um, store chain here in Portland now that uses facial recognition Um, that would have to stop Um, you know it would stop use of say um, the technology in a bank Uh, maybe they wanted to use it for verifying identity Um, that would have to stop so there's a lot of different um, potential impacts here that could really potentially be influential to other cities in the country
0: and the biggest concerns about facial recognition the biggest fear is i know generalized it's like big brother spell out those concerns more practically like how might facial recognition uh... use or the lack shall we say of facial recognition ban have concerning impacts what are you hearing
2: well there's absolutely concern um... at uh, even at the federal level uh, about the potential for surveillance using facial recognition so not just for example how it's used by law enforcement to um, to see it to, to help figure out um, to help narrow down a list of candidates for sus- uh, crime suspects but something much more insidious um, something like what happens in China today A real time surveillance use of facial recognition. That's something that could be possible. Uh, Lawmakers, really, many of them do want to stop, want to prevent that from happening. In fact, on a future episode of Banned in PDX, the podcast, um, and that's spelled B A N N E D in PDX, on a future episode, I've got an interview with Senator Jeff Merkley, who um, has been really engaged in the issue of facial recognition and the, um, the potential for a surveillance state built out of facial recognition. He co-sponsored um, a bill uh, that was uh, comes from uh, Senator Ed Murkey And um, so, Merkley, uh, you know, I talked to him last week, and he's, Definitely, I, the 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 big brother effect is seems to be pretty high up on his list of why we need to craft federal legislation that you know prevents that kind of real time um, you know always on surveillance of people using facial recognition and other biometric technologies. The act is called the. Biometric Moratorium Act or something like that. The Facial Recognition and Biometric Moratorium Act. Um, So a future episode of Banned in PDX features a talk with Jeff Merkley about that and that is a definite concern.
0: What are the political discussions lining up to look like? Who are the major players supporting the ban? Who are the major players opposing it?
2: I would love to say that I have more insight into that. Right now, um, I personally am still waiting to see the public comments that have been submitted to the city regarding the, there's two facial recognition ordinances that will be voted on. It's looking like at, at the end of August now. Um, and so, I mean, months ago there was a work session at the city council. They actually have done two um, and business entities, uh, the Technology Association of Oregon and the Portland Business Alliance, both signaled opposition to the ban on private use of facial recognition here. And this is because so the they want to be able to. that a business could use it in their place of business, they were, they were saying, we don't know if we like this.
0: And are they advocating for an exception? Are there any current exceptions in that ban? Yes. Or what are some yeah. of those exceptions and what are others that people are advocating for?
2: First of all, this is a draft, it's not the final thing they're going to vote on, but um, as it is today, um, one exception that's pretty significant is the Portland public schools. Uh, They would not be included here because they're not under the city's jurisdiction. Private schools would be included, so a private school would not be allowed to use facial recognition um, if the ban passes. Uh, another thing that I think there's going to be some stuff worked out, but Port of Portland, you know, it's its own entity. And so facial recognition that happens at, in, at the airport for verification, um, you know, I believe Delta Airlines actually uses it. I want to say Delta. Maybe it's Southwest. I'm, I'm blanking on which actual airline uses it in the Portland airport right now, but that would be something that I think, um, you know, there's going to be some maneuvering around there, but I think as it stands in the draft, that would not be covered. Um, you know, and then things like uh, in office, if, if your um, place of business used facial recognition to access, like, uh, a meeting room or something inside the building that would be okay. Yeah, if you use your face do as do a that. key that you wouldn't be able to use it in the lobby of the of the building because that has public access. If you that's use the your kind of distinction we're talking about.
0: If you use your face as a key like in a movie.
2: Yeah, exactly. So like that's the sort of thing that, that um I believe would as the draft stands today still be allowed even if that private ban is passed.
0: Kate K, the show is Banned in PDX, as well as right here. You can check that at xraypod.com or on your favorite podcast up against Banned in PDX, B-A-N-N-E-D in PDX. Kate K, you're a gem. Thank you so much for spending time with us.
2: Thanks, Jefferson.
0: Thanks to Alex and Kate for joining The Local. Big thanks to our production team. Editors Will Romy, Miranda Sellinger, and Jonathan Covington-Brem. And writers also Jonathan, Kate Kaye, Sophie Mallon, DJ Ambush, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchuk, Carly Quadros, Jaleesa Ringering, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiassi. Shout out to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks for original journalism and research by The Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID-19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, The Lament Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, The Ben Bulletin, Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, Street Roots, KGW, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and the Portland Mercury. Thank you for listening to Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you Monday. X-Ray.